everyone. Welcome back to SideQuest episode 53, Zelda Majora's Mask episode 7. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Mr. Ben Kozlowski, now uh, convalesced from a small illness, and Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, you two. Good, good to be back. back. And so. Good to have y'all. And so for today, um, there were a couple of things I wanted to talk about today. We're so, we got, I believe, to the Pirate Forest, or excuse me, Fortress, in the Zora sort of bay area in the last uh, episode. And so for this time, we were supposed to go into the Great Bay Temple and I think defeat that. And thus we would have been uh, ostensibly three-fourths of the way through the game. But I, I wanted to ask first, uh, just sort of a nostalgic question, sort of based on uh, Wes's um, Earthbound project and recently his, his Dark Materials project. But um, I wanted to ask about y'all's experiences of playing video games during the summer and um, whether there were any particular games or any particular summers where video games or a video game um, sort of uh, brought out the, the tenor of the summer or made the summer or was a big part of the summer now that we are in summer. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, uh, I, I spent many a summer's day. There was a particular summer when I was convalescing, uh, at least one summer I had some major illness or injury or both. And I just played video games the whole time. And it was, it was the only way I got through that, you know, like it, it really, um, kept me occupied. Otherwise I would just would have gone stir crazy. I was playing, uh, the original Kirby on the NES, I think, and some maybe some dragon warrior on NES and that kind of, that kind of stuff. It was so, so relaxing. Yeah. I can think of two just off the top of my head. Um, I think the first summer after we graduated from college, um, that summer that we were working at CT, CTY, um, after I went home, I took a stint and just played through literally as many final fantasy games as I could possibly get my hands on at that point. Um, and I mean, like on all sorts of weird platforms, because I never had an NES or an SNES. So I was like playing Final Fantasy 1 on Game Boy Advance and Final Fantasy 3 on Nintendo DS and Final Fantasy 5 and 6 uh, for the first time ever on PS1. And it was just great because um, so many of those games are so good. And at that point, I, I had, you know, I had followed the progress of the franchise. They were obviously a big deal, but I had never played any of them. So that was my first encounter with Final Fantasy VI, with Final Fantasy VII, both of which are fantastic. Um, Final Fantasy VIII I had played pretty frequently up until that point. That one's always been a pet favorite of mine. Um, it was my first time playing through Final Fantasy IX, and then I was finally graduating up to playing Final Fantasy X on the PS2, which was brand new to me. And a big deal, very exciting. Um, and I just remember that being an awesome summer, just like working through those games, seeing the development of the franchise, like watching the history of gaming itself transpire through this <laughs> one series. Yes. Um, and the second summer that it actually comes to mind is last year, uh, after teaching for something like 11 months straight, um, possibly, you know, the longest period of constant work I've had in my life. Um, I had done the fall semester, I had done the spring semester, and then I had two back-to-back -back summer classes, and then I had a month off, August. That was it. That was my sum total of my break. And I just sat and I played through Persona 5, like, day by day, playing hours, because that sucker is so long. Um, but it was also a really good time. Like, 
I kind of wish now that I had spent some of that time more productively, but it's a good game and it was worth the, worth the investment. Um, but the two were sort of diametrically opposed in my mind. One, you know, very recently in my very responsible thirties and one at the very beginning of my, you know, professional career before I even had a real job, you know, the last couple months of just uninterrupted me screwing around. <laughs> Those are pivotal moments. And you, you two make me think it's, it's funny. I'm not going to mention either of my favorite games here. Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII were my favorite games growing up. And I played them alongside each other because I got a PlayStation, I think a year after everybody else or so. So I was about a year behind everybody. Um, I was actually multiple. <laughs> I, I can recall behind on Final Fantasy VII, and that's why Final Fantasy VIII was out at the same time. This is the same time that Tony Hawk Pro Skater came out, which was another one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But I, it was, I think, believe my sophomore year and my junior year of high school, where I started playing my first ever online game, and I was conspicuously aware of the fact that it was not as good as EverQuest. But mm-hmm. there was, it was just very interesting. I knew I had an addictive personality, sort of a male autistic personality, like you. Sort of like a, a a neutral version of the Joker. You just throw mm-hmm. the ball and I'll run after it. You know, the car drives, I'll run after it. I don't really ever want to get to the car, but the running after it is the greatest thing in the world. Um, but um, uh, the the game I'm thinking about here that that I actually allowed myself to get into, and which is why I'm glad I never did play EverQuest because people did talk about it like marijuana while I was mm-hmm. growing up. Like it's they called it EverCrack, right, for a reason. Yep. You could get a super addicted to it, and it seemed so fun, and it really did call to me. But even at that young age, I had the sense that it was like a siren. But the online game that I did play, which I think was far uh, inferior on my Sega Dreamcast, of all things, was Fantasy Star Online. Oh, yeah. And the Fantasy Star Online was based on the Fantasy Star series, but it, it the gameplay was... Uh, I would say, again, far inferior to the former Fantasy Stars because it wasn't truly RPG. It was more like hack and slash, more like what they're doing to the new Final Fantasy VII, though that looks pretty fun. And they've had time to work on that engine through the Kingdom Hearts series. But in any case, one thing that game taught me about myself, which I think is still true when I look at my summer projects here, is that I'm totally willing to grind out for several hours in a row during summer, moving towards a state of uh, greater perfection or, or higher level. Like I was willing to go through those formulaic, boring levels that Fantasy Star offered. And at first there were only four of them. And they, they, you know, they were very straightforward. They were very boring. And I would do whatever I needed to in order to get leveled up. The other game I would mention is Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind. That game was really cool. Um, And that was, I think, the final game that I ever beat before I went off to college and entered the big world. I think that's sort of interesting from a union perspective because I think it sort of shows that, A, I allowed myself sort of the EverQuest experience, but not with the online experience in order to make sure that I didn't have the true crack experience. There was a sort of a limiting factor on there. Um, But two, it's like I was ready to explore the world. So it's funny, those two games showed me that I'm ready to explore the world during that one summer. And also that I like to put big endeavors in front of myself and work towards them. And that's one of the greatest pleasures I get, even if the particular endeavor is sort of boring, whether it be Fantasy Star Online on the Dreamcast or my current endeavor to read all 37 of Shakespeare's works in 37 days, which I'm making okay progress on in day 15 right now. (laughs) Sounds fairly arduous, if very... (laughs) 
especially during the King Henry the Sixth plays. They're not all, you know, they're not all Midsummer Night's Dream quality and things like that. Uh, but so uh, for today, for today, uh, last time we spoke, we talked a lot about repetition. We talked about life and death. We talked about symbols of death. It was a great conversation, though definitely missing you, Ben. I don't know if you wanted to address any of the things we said last time or if either of you had a particular moment you wanted to start on. We also talked a little bit about the symbolic nature of the hook shot and what it means to be reacquiring all these items, all these items that we once had in games before, especially if we played before, and how that sort of relates to Plato's theory of recollection and learning things. Uh, we, you know, we covered quite a bit of ground. It's like we were using a hook shot ourselves uh, to, to draw ourselves forward last time. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to start with anything like that or Wes, if there was something in particular about the Great Bay that you would like to bring up. Uh, we also talked about the racial dynamics of the Gerudo. <laughs> yep. I, I heard the, I listened to the podcast, I think yesterday. Um, you definitely covered a lot of ground and a lot of good points. And um, like the Great Bay, it seemed like you were over over your head a couple of times as well. But, you know, so there's some deep conversations to be had there. Uh, but just to, you know, jump into the deep end, what the one thing that I kept running into as I was playing through the Great Bay most recently uh, is the there's sort of an undercurrent of sexuality and of personal relationships throughout the Great Bay quest um, between the fact that you are playing as Macau, who it is at least strongly insinuated is the one who both impregnated um, Lulu the singer and is responsible for recovering the eggs, their children, but also you get just little bits and glimpses of other ways that these relationships can be constructed. Like the guy who wants you to bring up a, a uh, picture of one of the attractive Gerudo women from the fortress in order to give you the seahorse. And then the seahorse itself actually takes you to pinnacle rocks. So you will save its mate, even though you've got other reasons to go there. Um, so that was, it, it was, it's a, very prevalent theme throughout this section especially and it's also one that we've seen elsewhere like in the cafe quest that we talked about earlier um but here it's especially prominent and i was kind of curious what what do you think what do you think we're seeing here what, what do you think why are we emphasizing this dimension of behavior now why is why is the base so sexy i guess well, that, I think that's a fantastic question, and um, I really want to hear what you have to say on that, Wes. And Ben, I just I love your expertise on this game. You definitely highlight aspects of it that I would never notice and definitely haven't noticed. And so uh, extremely valuable having you here. But I, I would say that it reminds me a bit of the Harry Potter series, which is also sort of a young adult series, also meant for sort of a similar age demographic, and that two of the major themes that come up in that story as part of growing up are a encountering the opposite gender and how awkward and difficult that is and how much practice and patience and you know uh, essentially virtue that requires and how little virtue one has and one or and skill that one has to navigate those relationships in fact we've gotten to the seventh book now and Bronze having a lot of trouble with Hermione at the this particular moment but all, also how you know and you know, this is very Freudian, I suppose, too. He says there are two instincts, the Thanatos instinct, the death instinct, and the Eros instinct, the instinct towards life. But I think you, you sort of see that what a Jungian would say is that what those both focus on, life and death, 
are your essential mortality. And that what I think a right d'entree or a right of becoming an adult, which I would argue a video game, especially a challenging video game like this, where you go through puzzles or reading a young adult book tries to convey to you are these two fundamental realities. That of the, of the opposite number and the reality of the family and producing a new uh, human. And I don't see how that couldn't be one of the biggest mysteries that exists because you know that is literally propagation of life, which is something we don't understand that well, but we're all a big part of. And, but also the recognition of death, because again, the person that we embody here is again, a sort of heroic level figure like the Goron we embody who dies right in front of us. And so uh, I haven't gotten farther than that yet. Perhaps I, I find myself over my head, but hopefully I have a Zora mask so that I can get down to the depths while that's happening. Um, but I see those as the two major puzzles or riddles that one has to investigate and find a solution to in order to become an adult. And I see this as a pivotal moment in the game, trying to sort of uh, bring that to light uh, or to start to bring those two moments together. Yeah, one of the things that um, sort of, like we touched on the subject of maturity a little bit earlier, especially with how like you're, you're sort of initially imprisoned in this body of the Deku scrub who is cast consistently as, as being just a child, like even the guards won't let you leave the city because you're a child, you need your parents. Um, Link sort of occupies this weird space as far as his own maturity because you know he's he appears young but we know from Ocarina of Time that he actually has a lot more experience than you would expect sort of symbolized by his sword but then the masks that we get seem to propel him to greater and greater maturity and age so Darunia is a respected member of the Goron society he's a hero but he's also unattached um, he's also alone in his own right. Like you, you don't ever meet Darunia's widow um, if he even has one. But what makes the Zora mask so interesting is that um, unlike Darunia, where you are just the hero and everybody expects you to do great things like, you know, Link is always supposed to do, here you have a relationship with the other characters. They respond to you as a person. You have a professional life. You go around and you can talk to the bassist, to Evan, and they all have sort of differing relationships to you. Lulu can't talk because Lulu can't talk, but you get the sense that if anything, that would be the even bigger relationship. And when you talk to her after you restore her voice, she is grateful, but also sort of distant. Like you would think that she would be more intimate with you given that you represent her boyfriend, her arguably husband. Um, but she doesn't even give you that much. Like the game, the game wants you to fill this role to be a full grown adult in great Bay um, or at least more of an adult than we've seen so far, like with responsibilities, with societal influence and so on and so forth. But you occupy this sort of strange, strange position because you're not who you appear to be. You aren't really Macau. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. It's an interesting problem to present in a game like this, um, such a side of life uh, and the way that I kind of try to deal with that problem is to sort of remember that these are, these are rock stars, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to have like a conventional marriage. They're going to be very bohemian uh, and very um, artistic. Right. And so it might be the case that you could imagine 
them settling down, but that would be in some sense untrue to their their persona or their their, their nature even um, as these kind of you know they're they're sort of dedicated to their art rather than to a stable relationship. That's how I kind of understand the problem that's uh, posed by the fact that it's yeah it's strongly suggested that Mikau is uh, her boyfriend, husband, if you like. But on the other hand, you're also the hero and you've got to go and do some other stuff. So you have to be able to do that. So she ends up sort of just returning to be the singer, right? And sort of that's her role. She doesn't even seem to take that much interest in her um, her offspring, which have, you know, transformed into little tadpoles over at the, um, the research center, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they give you the song, right? That they are, in some sense, they are the song. That's her, that's her production. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's kind of, I, that's how I take it. Um, I, I, I do like the, the theme, the, the variations on the theme here. Like, I, I really like the, uh, the seahorses. They're, they're really cute. Um, and they, they guide you through like a stormy sea, you know? That, that's such a cool variation on the, um, the, the desert part in the previous game where you're guided through the the, the stormy desert um, dusty or whatever yeah mm-hmm. I'm also kind of curious though like if Lulu and Macau's relationship is really inscrutable it, we don't have a whole lot to work with um, we do sort of see we do sort of see like a positive and a negative attitude towards sexuality in this section like we have the voyeur the guy who just wants a photograph of those attractive Gerudo ladies. We, and we have the seahorses who seem for all intents and purposes to really legitimately be in love. Like when in fact you find, you clear out the pinnacle rock and the seahorses are finally rejoined. They're ecstatic. Like it's adorable. They, they do the little dance thing where they make a heart with their own bodies. Yeah. Like they, they have little hearts popping up above their heads. Like it, I mean, what, you pointed out that like he's the one who guides you. It's almost the suggestion that it's love itself that is guiding you through this stormy sea, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which you know then brings to mind the fact that the Gerudo can't navigate; that they are they are sexless in a very real way, both in their their just in their genetics, like the fact that they are an all female race that they they take husbands but they don't keep them. Uh, sex is for them something completely separate from love and uh, relationships as as they're often cast in these games. That's interesting, yeah. I, I mean, you see the scene of them plying uh, the high seas, right, and getting uh, tossed by the, the cyclone, uh, just completely uh, scattered, you know. Uh, it, it is such a strong um, contrast with the the way that the little seahorse with his little light can, can guide you through it. Um, of course, you're also like a magical underwater being at that point, which is helpful. Uh, <laughs> so that doesn't hurt. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, one other thing that goes into this, I think, is the idea of like the, uh, the, the containers, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talked for a while about like all the different bottles. I, I, I forgot to go back and try to see, but I feel like all of the bottles have some element of this, um, like, there's something to do with romance that seems to be linked with at least a few of them. Um, And you certainly use them here 
in a, in a really like important way to um, transport those eggs and like that it makes me think that there's something going on there with like the idea of a um uh, a, a an object whose use is um determined by the sorts of things that it carries mm-hmm. right that like it only takes on importance because of the thing that's placed within it uh that that concept i mean seems a little bit uh misogynistic or like potentially just a little i don't know objectifying or something like that um but that does seem to be kind of the way that that's presented i don't know if that's you know too freudian or something but um that's what i was kind of thinking about it's sort of like makes you think about that the way you have to use it to carry these eggs around um and uh and then you know if you don't have enough bottles it becomes really a lot trickier to to get through that uh that prerequisite to go and do the the temple itself i don't know yeah one of the, i know um one of the things that the like there if you talk to some of the people in the great bay obviously you do need bottles to get to get the zora eggs and it is especially difficult if you don't have a whole lot of them, but there are a couple of characters who will point you to the beavers um, at the end of one of the like paths that leads away from the Cape. It's as inland as Great Bay gets. And then when you meet them, they're two brothers. Like they're both these beavers and they're sort of weird beavers. They're like clockwork beavers. They have propellers yeah. instead of tails. It's kind of strange, um, but you you can race them like they they race you, and first you race the little brother, and then you beat the little brother, and the little brother's like, "I'm sorry, I can't actually give you a bottle. You have to beat my big brother because you know that's apparently the way the whole beaver consortium works." <laughs> um, and then you beat the big brother, and they're like, "Well, crap! Now we have to give you a bottle." And then you can beat them again, and they'll give you a piece of heart. And at that point, they're just completely dejected. Um, but like a lot of the bottles they do come from relationships not necessarily romantic relationships but like you get your first one from Kalmi, who you know it's the sisters caring for each other um like you have to you get your first bottle full of red potions so you can bring it to the witch who has fallen in the woods um because kotake wants to protect her and then you get the second one um from from romani at the ranch for fighting off the aliens so now you have this bond of friendship like of fulfilling your promise which the game emphasizes that if you promise to be there at one o'clock in the morning and fight off the aliens you know you're, you're bound to that and then if you do it you get the bottle um and then you've got the beavers and then you've got the gold dust from the gorons which uh-huh. has a lot to do with like the little kid expecting you darunia to live up to your to your heroic standards um and then a the other two, I think, are a little bit more obscure. The one, I think, is being protected by Dompe, and I forget the last, partially because I've been playing it on 3DS, and they vary a little bit from game to game. Um, but they are based on relationships and based on promises and based on an interest in protecting one another. Um, there's almost always two people involved for a bottle, um, and you've got you've to navigate their relationship in order to get one which would lead to that sort of Freudian conclusion. Like this is something that protects something else. Just as, you know, the beavers are protective of their bottles and Kami and Kotake are protection, protective of their potions, so you and Lulu are protective of your offspring. 
And so you have to protect them from the Gerudo and from the other dark forces in Great Bay at this point. That's interesting. And I, I see the I see the containers in the Freudian perspective and sort of the physical feminine in that, of course, women are those who carry life within them and uh, and Zora too, apparently, though they have eggs outside of them. And so sort of a slightly different re, uh, uh, reproductive process that they have. Uh, something of a mystery to us, but similar enough, similar enough. But there's also sort of, if you take uh, the Jungian perspective, there's the sort of symbolic feminine in a way uh, as well, which is always that which contains that which happens. And so the world is considered feminine and that it is sort of the scene on which the, uh, the world and society and human life and all life happens as far as we know in the, you know, the universe so far. And so um, what's, What's also interesting about these uh, these containers is that they're clear, and so sort of adjacent to that point or juxtaposed to it, it makes me think about um, Link and how when he first starts his journey down here, he's sort of reduced to his lowest form. In fact, even lower than his lowest form is a decus, a lowly decus grub, not even a young potential uh, human slash uh, kokiri hero. Um, but what starts to give him value, and this sort of comes from a comment that Kwame's um, sister made, I've, I've forgotten her sister's name, where she says, you're not who you seem to be. You're no hero at first when you run into her without the red fluid. And it's almost like the value of you as a sentient being does not simply come from how you, are, how you appear or, or even from the fact that you are simply sentient, but through what you fill your time with and what you do. And so that there's, uh, there seems just like, just like a bottle as a container derives its value, not simply from being a container, but that which is contained within it. Well, I, I suppose I'd say there are those two aspects. The container itself has value and that something can be put in it, sort of like the idea of an hourglass or how you use your time as well as the thing you put it in. And the, the maximum value comes from, you know, using as much space in the container as possible to have the most functionally useful uh, product within it, which changes depending on the time you happen to be there, I, I, or, or, or where you happen to be and what it is that you have to do. And so, uh, I, I don't know, I, we've gotten uh, very deep philosophically speaking, but I, I do agree that like the idea of a container and that which is contained within it is at least a, a position which it, or an idea which is juxtaposed to what makes a hero a hero. It's like a person who has to act in a certain way that is different from another person or another person's way of acting can be a hero in the same way as that other person uh, if they rise to the situation that's in front of them in the way they need to, whether that be becoming a father or accepting death or you know constructing a new song or winning a race. Those are all very different activities but um, lead to some sort of potentially salubrious conclusion. Um, just to weigh in on that. Yeah. As we're talking about the emptiness and also sort of like connecting it to the feminine, I'm, I'm thinking about um, the Tao Te Ching uh, and sort of- Me too, me too, go. go. Yeah. Um, like I teach this text every year to my students and like so much of the Tao Te Ching emphasizes exactly what we're talking about, that the use of a jar comes from its emptiness um, and that that is connected consistently throughout the text to the, to the feminine, um, that a woman, her womb is the creative emptiness. It, it is an emptiness, but it makes 
Um, and the Tao itself in the Tao Te Ching is described as sort of this boundless, nameless, undescribable void, but it is a void that is essentially creative. It makes the universe is coming out of that void. Heaven, hell, the 10,000 things, everything that exists is a product of the Tao, which is itself empty. So the bottle, it's useful in the same way that the Tao is useful because of its emptiness, because of the fact that it that it can hold things, that it can do any number of things that you want it to do, and it's flexible, and it's empty, and it's transparent, and it doesn't have its own ends, and it is feminine. But for the Taoist, the feminine is the highest, the highest order. Um, the the masculine forces are always destroyed because they are brittle and they like try to control the world too much. And instead, the Taoist sage is like the river. It wears down uh, the strong, brittle things over time. Um, and, you know, there again, we have a water connection. So again, these common metaphors keep coming up, water and femininity and emptiness. And this is just all great bay. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if we should go into the temple a little bit at this point. Um, but I, I thought it was such an interesting, like the water temple is always kind of a drag, I feel like in these games. I don't know why, yes. but uh, <laughs> but this time I found the mountain temple to have a lot of the qualities of the frustrating, you know, sort that the, the old water temples tended to have. And I found that yes. this temple, this water temple actually is like really fun, I, I think. Um, it's like, maybe not as hard as some of the other ones is part of it. <laughs> At least I didn't think it was, except when maybe you're trying to find all those darn little fairies uh, in their bubbles and things. But, but you know, that's doable still. Um, and it's just like, it's very satisfying to get to sort of revisit that central chamber and have it not be um, like a giant pillar that you have to get to the right height, but instead to be this whirlpool that you've got to switch the uh, directions on to be able to go and explore the entire the entirety of the, um, the dungeon. So I thought that the use of currents of water was, was really interesting. And, and I, like I said, just like really fun and satisfying this, this design that they have. Yeah, there was a YouTube video that came out a few, I think either last year or the year before, um, there was a fellow named Mark Brown who has been, who systematically took apart the Zelda dungeons in every Zelda game to date. Um, and he was looking through uh, the game design principles underlying the Ocarina of Time dungeons and the Majora's Mask dungeons. And he had very nice things to say about Majora's Mask, especially, uh, which made me happy because it's, you know, my pet favorite in the series. But especially comparing the two water temples, um, I think there are similarities in, insofar as you have, you, like, you have to control the way that you interact with the water in both temples. Um, you interact with the height in Ocarina of Time, like it can, the water can be at three different heights and it's got to be at certain heights in order for you to access certain areas. Oh. Um, but then in Great Bay, it's the same deal, whether the current is going clockwise or counterclockwise and that big central whirlpool chamber affects which rooms you can go to and which order you can get to them. But I find it, I find, like you said, that this one is way more fun because you spend half of the water temple in Ocarina of Time just going up and going down. Like you put on the boots and down you go. And oh, then the you take off the boots and up you go. Um, 
they're not very mobile. You can't really move very well. There are multiple places in the dungeon where the detection is bad and like you'll be wearing the boots and you'll slip into a whirlpool and have to start an entire room all over again. Or like you'll slip down the side and be like, crap, now I have to take off the boots and go up. And then I only want to go up so far. So I have to put but, but here, because you've got the Zora mask, you can actually move. And where the water temple is a static relationship in Ocarina of Time, like which state is the water in, now it's fluid, it's moving. Um, it's where can I go? Where does the current take me? Um, so it is more active in that sense. Like there's never a dull moment in the Great Bay Temple, which is nice because again, it's Majora's Mask, so you're always on the clock. Yeah. Which is also interesting just because, uh, just making the connection or uh, bridge, hmm, agreeing with the, or noticing the connection that uh, Wes made between the mountain temple in this game and the water temple and the ice, uh, particularly in the ice, in the water temple and water area of the Zora in Ocarina of Time is that there that sort of uh, freezing effect on your progress through the time seems to take place both in the Water Temple and Ocarina of Time as well as in the mountain area. Whereas here in this temple where you get the ice arrows rather than the fire arrows necessary for melting ice, there seems to be sort of a, uh, a things go very fast here. Um, in this temple. You have to fight against currents. You yourself move very fast. Though, of course, you know, as a Goron, you can move pretty fast, but you're sort of unwieldy or unwieldy when you do so. Um, and so there seems to be connection here between there being sort of a sense of pace um, to life. Things aren't simply stopped in the way that they are on, on the mountain temple. I'm not entirely sure why that is, but it does seem like the theme is consistent. And that does also seem, because I haven't played this uh, I haven't gotten through the pirate temple all the way quite yet. I just have the first two eggs. I actually still need a bottle. I know I still have some work to do, some ground to cover. I've been hit by an ice arrow. Uh, but um, uh, um, but um, it, it makes me think that even there's a connection here between even the pleasant parts of life and the things which are fun or when sailing is smooth or when things are going along smoothly, when things don't feel like they're at a stop. I mean, there's a very strong connection between uh, the mountain and the ice in the mountain in the Goron part and say the bottom of the upside down funnel of hell in Dante's Inferno where the ultimate evil just brings time to a stop, everything to a stop. And that's also a place where there can be no uh, heat of love too. And so I, I just wonder whether there's a connection between love, relationship like we've been talking about, uh, time moving forward, parenting, uh, something like that going on here in the Great Bay Temple. And that's why it leads to a more fun experience, which I'll have to weigh in on next time after I've actually had that experience. Yeah, I look forward to, I mean, you, if you're still going through the, the, the um, Pirate's Fortress, uh, do keep an eye out for, I think there's some little um, invisible guy in there. I couldn't find him. I, I vaguely remember him being like one of the last masks that I found. But but yeah, use your the, little, the stone mask. Um, yeah, the stone, where exactly is that guy? Because I, I looked around a little with my my lens of truth and I didn't see him. Um, am I doing something wrong? Um, first of all, what do you which which version of the game are you guys playing? Because that will actually change the answer to this question. N sixty four, and yeah, I got that mask. No yeah. Okay. So uh, in the N sixty four game, he's actually in Akana. Um, oh shoot. Like, 
Okay. Yeah, he's got to go exactly the opposite direction. And uh, he's like at the base of the giant wall with the dude who just sort of sits there and requires you to have the Garrow mask in order to get up um, onto the wall. If you look around in that area, you'll find a little circle of stones. And if you use your lens of truth, you'll see the guy sitting in the middle. Um, he, he will need a red potion um, in order to give you the mask. But once you have it, it makes the Gerudo Fortress a breeze. Because you can literally wear the mask and like walk right up to Gerudo and stab them with your sword and they fall down. And you know, they can't see you. The stone mask basically makes you invisible. That's why I kept associating it with that place because there, there's something you need to do with it around there then, isn't there, um, that you use it for, I guess, for sneaking around a lot, lot yeah, more easily. It helps, it helps a lot. Um, it, makes the, it makes the temple a lot easier. Um, and like I said, I've, I've been playing on the 3DS version, and they moved him, and it, it threw me initially because I went to Akana knowing I was going to go to the Gerudo Fortress, and I, I usually spend some time in Akana beforehand to prepare just you know the way that the time works out um but they actually move him so he's literally sitting at the base of the tower in the center of the gerudo fortress compound Uh, version um yeah he's right where he needs to be arguably like you don't have to go out of your way to find it but it's actually a greater challenge getting the mask because he's right there and there are all these women wandering around (laughs) trying to find you so you have to perform like the ultimate feat of stealth in order to get the mask that makes it unnecessary, which you know is pretty typical of video games. Um, th- that was a good move as far as I'm concerned. Not all of the decisions they made in, in the 3DS version I'm psyched about, but that one, that one I'm on board with. Interesting. Well, yeah, so that will be something interesting to talk about one of these days then is, is what, what differences there are and how they affect the uh, experience for better, for worse, or just for variety's sake. Uh, but yeah, yeah. We, we encourage you, Alex, to, to persevere, get through the, the fortress of women, shoot down the hive, scare them away, get the hookshot, et cetera. Oh, wait, I think you already got the hookshot, though, right? You got to get the I bottle. Am. That's what it is. Beat the yeah. beavers. Get the bottle. Do it. You can do it. I know. And just, you know, the fact that it is, of course, beavers that you have to beat in this particular oh. moment. Also, <laughs> oh, just, uh, I don't even think of that. You've been reading too much Shakespeare, man. That's a, that's a Shakespearean bad pun right there. Yeah, I suspect well, that pun doesn't translate to the Japanese. <laughs> well, yeah, who knows? Well, so what, um, are there any thoughts that we wanted to include today on uh, before I get to persevering? and uh, meeting these particular beavers. No, no, I, I, I also am interested in the, the spider temple thingies that are scattered oh, around. Yeah. Um, they, they're kind of freaky and, and cool, uh, fun way to while away some summer days. But, um, but as far as, yeah, the, the Great Bay itself, the only other thing I would say about it is that it's like, you know, the place like think of Mario Sunshine, right? It's like they take this place that's water themed because it's sort of like a vacation spot. And then in both cases, that's like the scene of, of some sort of crime, some sort of terrible thing has happened and you have to you know, make it nice again. Um, and so I think about that too, like the idea of vacations and summers and romance, they all seem to kind of go together. Um, and, and the way that this you know, particular Great Bay uh, is, has this shadow over it. Um, it's interesting that then sort of the, the problems that you run into there tend to be of, of a romantic 
sort, right? Um, because this this place that is so naturally romantic is um, deserted and you know the site of of death and um, and lost uh, lost chances, lost opportunities, or something like that. Okay, very interesting. That just I, there are two things I have to say on that, which is. Uh, one, I think it's very interesting. It reminds me of the notion William James had of the idea of a moral holiday and, he's, and that you cannot go on a moral holiday in your existence because morality does not take a break, even if you do. Um, and so the idea of a vacation seems to be that you, you go into a sort of simulated reality where no wrong can happen, where good things happen, right? And so many people seem to like switch, flip this switch when they go to vacation. They only notice the good things. They even like look in a certain wide-eyed way. It's almost as if you look at reality in a different way. I recall you actually experimenting with this in Annapolis, Wes, where you said you wanted to live life as travel. But it yeah. becomes difficult yeah. to do that. Um, but I think part of the comment here uh, that's being made in this great bay, which is a vacation spot, is similar to William James's point, which is similar to J.K. Rowling's point and Harry Potter, which is that no matter where you go, even a place in the mind, the limitations of reality will impose themselves. And one of the major limitations on story, any story in any medium, is the fact of death and of darkness. And that it, it doesn't, there's no way to escape from it. You need to accept it. Um, no matter where you are. That seems to be such a big part of growing up and also just video games and novels and stories. They do, again, I'd, I'd like to say that this seems to be my mature perspective on what these games are, are offering. They're not just escapes. They're not supposed to be simple escapes from our reality, but again, lenses through which we understand our reality and place within it. That's what I think the true value of these, uh, these media are. And so, and also I agree with you that those spider houses are very freaky and also themselves um, symbols of sort of the underlying darkness within this world and therefore every world. That the deeper you go, the more you find not only the gold, but the very real, you know, darkness around the gold. Uh, the feces is the alchemist would say. Yeah, picking up that thread, um, I would, or rather I want to come back to it, but there is just one point I wanted to sort of like touch on before I did. Um, the connection to Super Mario Sunshine I actually think is really interesting um, because the two games were released pretty close in time to each other. I think, I think these were like Shigeru Miyamoto's two big projects back to back if I'm not mistaken because I don't think there was another Zelda game or another you know central Mario game in that time. Um, so it would make sense to connect Great Bay and sort of like the vacation spot with a cloud hanging over it to Mario in Super Mario Sunshine literally going on vacation only to be framed for a crime he didn't commit and end up having to spend the entire time cleaning up this mess. So again, you have this theme of pollution. Again, it's a physical darkness that rests over the place. Like the shine sprites are gone because of this pollution. So literally the island is dark mm. in Super Mario Sunshine. Um, and in both cases, it's your responsibility to fix it. Like you were supposed to be taking your moral holiday, so to speak, but instead, surprise, you're kicked back into the role of hero, going around admittedly lavish places, like places that you would associate with, you know, vacation spots and re relaxation and arguably beautiful women and summer love and that sort of thing. But now your job instead is to be the paradigmatic hero. You are supposed to step up instead of stepping down. Um, but to, to come back to those Skultola houses, 
Um, the point about about gold, especially, I think, is what is what sort of shines through in both cases. Like the two houses, the one in the the swamp and the one in Great Bay, they're both sort of posed as though they're they're things that rich people bought. Like they're both these mansions, they're both owned by these rich owners, and you interact with each of the owners kind of briefly. Um, in the swamp, you find the owner. He's already been turned into into a Skultala. Um, and if if we remember from Ocarina of Time, the whole like Golden Skultala side quest was it's this rich family in Kakariko Village who apparently did something really bad, and now the they're cursed to be spider monster things until you bring back all of the Golden Skultala tokens and release them from the curse, which you know is an arduous task in Ocarina of Time. Oh, There's like a hundred of them. Um, so yeah and and like you, you get different rewards at different checkpoints so it's like that when you rescue the first 10 they give you something i think it's like an upgraded wallet and then when you get the first 20 then they turn on like the tremor pack thing so you know yeah, you like walk over, yeah you walk over holes and, and the the rumble pack rumbles and then you know to place a bomb or to play the song of storms or whatever um but here it's just these two these two buildings in the first case, you've got the one guy who's cursed, and you have to get his mask back. Like, or he's sort of like fused with his mask in the Skulltulla body. It's really disturbing when you see him at first. So he dispatches you through the house, and you clean out all the Skulltullas, and they're all localized. So it's not this whole thing where you have to like track them down in every dungeon, um, listen for the scritching on every wall. Um, <laughs> so instead, you just do it all there. And then you come out and he's restored and he gives you the mask of truth. But what's really interesting is if you then fairly logically put on the mask of truth and talk to the dog, because by wearing the mask of truth, you can hear the thoughts of animals. Um, the dog's like, that guy is such an idiot. He bought this pouch. He did not even look at it beforehand. He just like took it and now he's cursed and it's all his own darn fault. And really he should be glad that you are here to save him because he totally deserves what he got. Um, so on the one hand, that's this sort of depiction of like this wildly squandered wealth, like wealth that could have been used for something better. But the great Bay Skulltella house has like an even weirder relationship. Like the guy, you don't even see him. You, you just sort of walk into this random building. There's a wall that you can bomb and then bam, there's this huge underground complex complete with massive piles of Skulltellas. Um, and if and when you clean it out and get like all the secret stuff, you, you actually run into a couple of Stalthos down there and there's this big puzzle that can open up a piece of heart. Um, but then you come out after it's cleared out and it's this weird thing where if you do it on the second or third day, you meet this guy and he's like, oh man, you just missed me. I had all this money and then I bought, spent it all on this house and now I don't have anything to give you. So here's like five rupees. And it's the biggest anti-climax in the entire oh, game. I did not know that. That's really disappointing. <laughs> yeah, he totally screws you over. He stiffs you hard. The only reason that it make that like you want to do that Skulltulla house is you have to do it on the first day. Um, because if you catch him before the first night, he it's before he spent all the money, he still has his giant wallet and he gives you his wallet empty but it's the 500 rupee wallet, which is hugely useful and is the only way that you can get the all night mask. Right. Um, so 
it's useful, but in either case, he's like this rich jerk who bought this house on a venture would probably have been cursed if it wasn't for you helping him out. And he's completely oblivious to the fact that you helped. Like, he's like, wow, I didn't realize this house was such a great investment. Who knew it had a basement? Um, yeah. And, and so he actually says something like, I wonder if I can use this as a, as a shelter, right? He's going to like hide in there when, when the world ends, basically. So he's selfish in a different way. Yeah, but see, the way I took it is that that, um, that heart piece that's, that's hidden behind the chimney, mm-hmm. I always thought that that was the, um, the, the there's, a, there's a regular old Skulltola guy down there. And I always thought of that as being like the owner who was like guarding his treasure, even after the transformation had like become complete, you know, like he was yeah. completely transformed into a spider. And so you kill him and then you take his, uh, his heart piece. And then there's this new owner who's ready to take over um, as you're leaving. Uh, that, that's sort of the way I always like thought of that place. But, um, but it, it's, a, it's a weird uh, depiction of, yeah, like greed and selfishness and uh, <laughs> uh, truth, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the notion of squandering too and its relationship to Midas, the Midas touch and him sort of turning his daughter to gold and how sort of greed or squandering can also sort of destroy one's relationships with other things. So I think there is an oblique connection to the sort of theme of eros or of connection in terms of friendship and in terms of love that we've uh, been following, uh, a thread that we've been following ourselves like spiders during the course of this this, uh, show. But I, I just also like the idea of, and this might be also a dark interpretation of the idea of squandering in relation to the enterprise of playing a video game during the summer itself. There seems to be some notion that, you know, sort of like the New Testament uh, uh, parable of the talents where the man with five gets it to 10 and is given the poor man's after the poor man buries it, that when you are given more capacity, this also relates to our theme of, uh, 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 of the Tao of the and the container that, um, you have to do more with it. Otherwise, it can become a more terrible place. So if you're rich and by a giant manor, you actually have to work very hard in order to have that manor maintained, right? You need many attending servants, you need gardeners, you need to have a good working infrastructure, and you need to keep money coming in from the outside. Um, and obviously that has not been done here. And so I like the connection between this, this, uh, you know, this squandering and the idea of a vacation place gone dark and the connection to Super Mario Sunshine, which I have not had a chance to play, but it sounds like I need to add that to the list and then add some more hours into the day. Um, <laughs> but, that, but that even during a vacation time, you can be squandering your time if you're not acting right, or that perhaps your whole life is something like a vacation narrative and it will be defined by what you do during the course of it by yourself. So maybe there's a, an existential element to this as well. Constant reminders that you should use your time well. You're either, you know, making things better or worse. Right on. Yeah, I'm reminded first of uh, the point that Wes always likes to point out about Earthbound, how you, like when you call your dad to save, if you've been playing for a long time, he'll say, hey, why don't you quit for a little while? Maybe go outside for a bit. Um, Sort of like encouraging you to, you know, participate in your life beyond the game. But I'm also, like, in more recent memory, as games have become more self-aware, I guess, um, looking at Earthbound, looking at 
uh, these sort of insinuations of wasted time and video games as not necessarily being the best use of your time. Um, there was a game that came out several years back in the last console generation, a game called Spec Ops The Line. Um, and it was a fairly easy one to miss because it looked very much like every other brown modern military shooter that was coming out at that point in time. But it was actually a scathing indictment of the entire genre, like throughout the game. Um, and I've read a little bit of analysis uh, work by Brendan Kaog called uh, Killing is Harmless, which examined like all the symbolism and all of the thinking in the game. And one of the conclusions that he makes is throughout the game, you are given many indicators either like in the game world or in the way that the characters interact with you that say stop playing like and through the course of the game you literally make the game world worse you are the uh, villain wow. although it takes you a long time to figure that out over the course of the game like there's multiple occasions where you commit what could basically amount to war atrocities uh, you gradually lose your grip on reality as the game itself progresses and the sheer body count because you know any first person shooter that's always an element but this is one of the few games that actually sort of acknowledges that says you know what are you really doing going around carelessly shooting tons of people just because somebody on the other end of you know a walkie talkie is telling you to do so um, and this idea that not only not only could you be doing something better with your time, but this is actively destructive. Like you are being a bad person. Um, and Majora's Mask is also sort of tinkering with that lightly at this point, but it becomes more prevalent as the game continues. Um, there are a couple places, like as much as we associate Link with the hero and as much as we recognize that he is restoring the world around him, um, especially towards the end of the game, Majora, Majora itself challenges you and says, all right, let's play good guys and bad guys. You're the bad guy. You're the one who's actually destroying what is going on here. You are messing with the formula. Um, which, you know, it, it's a wrinkle that, that has some really interesting connotations here. Um, like is, is it better to just take a vacation from the game in some cases um, is it better to just go out and do something more directly productive and not, you know, fritter your time away with your own entertainments? I mean, I hesitate to say that we're in that position because we are dissecting this sucker. We're turning it into a scholarly pursuit. We're asking these questions. But even so, there's sort of like a, well, you know, it's still just a game. Do we have better things we could be doing? Um, so yeah, as we go forward, like especially in Akana and and in the end game, I think that will become even more apparent and prevalent. Excellent. Well, we yeah. certainly hit the spot today, um, and yeah, no, and I think that's an important question just for finite beings always to have about all their relations, all their relations and expenditures of time because they are so important because we do all have an expiration date and. Well, I just, I like that we in particular are being conscious of that just because there, there, you know, as there has always been a, a sort of conflict or a tension between the practical and the speculative life, at the very least, this is a speculative sort of endeavor, an endeavor where we're entering sort of the world of the forms. In fact, I have some comments I'd like to make next time about how I think actually uh, part of the appeal of video games is they're part of the sort of heaven kindergarten world that we create for children. 
that we have to leave in order to be adults, which I take as being the basic story of the fall, that you have to leave sort of that world where you're infinite and perfect in order to face the harsh realities of life and in maintaining a family and uh, raising a kid and that you have to sort of devote your mind to that in the practical world. But um, I, I think that question does come up constantly and that video games are perhaps the best lens. Uh, you know, maybe in the next generation it will be social media uh, through which to look at, at that. And uh, a question that we just keep coming back to. So I'm, I'm very happy I'm very happy with where we we're getting to, uh, both in the game and philosophically, and I'll make sure to catch up with y'all on all fronts uh, for this next time. Um, very good. Where should we try to get to for next time? Just start the Akana sequence or? Yeah, I think definitely finish uh, Great Bay and the Temple um, and then start hanging around the Akana graveyard. Mm. Um, like the canyon proper, uh, you, you can explore a little bit, but before you can really do, make any headway in the, in the Ikana Canyon proper and all that, I would highly suggest taking a slight detour. There's a little passage off to the left, again, in front of that big wall where the, the stone mask guy is. Um, you need to talk to Captain Kita and get his mask. Talk to the Stalfos, the Stal children, and have them start digging up graves because that's going to be important as we go forward. Right on. Cool. Uh, more direct con confrontation with death I don't think we could find. Yeah, Akana is not subtle about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, again, uh, great work, and thank you again for giving uh, you know, giving this endeavor your time. And uh, I continue to love the world that we're sharing and the one that we're creating, the one that hopefully we're opening up to others and hopefully also this game that so many people have loved um they're starting to appreciate it in the same way that say a wine lover would appreciate a wine as they start to understand the process of making it and the beautiful uh, aromas and differing flavors that are infused within it um and so well on to our our video game wine appreciation for next time then <laughs> yes it sounds good to me uh, very good you guys See y'all.